0: All right, so this morning um, we are going to, uh, I kind of said last week, that we're going to continue on looking at um, what's going to happen in England as we move forward, and that is true. We're just going to push that off a little bit. What I wanted to talk about today um, was just to kind of catch up what's happening in other places. So we, we talked about Luther. We took three weeks or so to talk about Luther, and we moved from Luther to Zwingli and then to Calvin, and so it's been about a month of talking about the Reformation. Um, It would be good then to take a little bit of time out, and we're going to do that today, to talk about what some people call the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Reformation, Um, because the Catholic Church came to a realization real quick um, about halfway—well, that wasn't real quick, but you know, halfway through the 16th century. they, they saw this as a, a small schism at first, but then that schism kind of took hold, and I think that eventually they sat back and said, okay, we, we do have some problems that we need to address. And we need to understand that there was kind of two different types of reformation that were going to be going on. When we talk about the Protestant Reformation, um, it's quite clear that we meant— also a moral reformation because there were problems within the Catholic Church that Protestants were responding to and they weren't all doctrinal so um, in, in even in the first instance we would we would argue I think rightly that it wasn't doctrinal at all it was moral um, when Luther, his problems weren't at first doctrinal with the church; um, they were first and foremost with the selling of indulgences and the immorality of that, um, and the immorality of what they were kind of pointing towards. It was it was not meant to be a break with the church, but a, a reforming part of the church um, that eventually turns into a a very strong doctrinal reformation in the church that luther went through with justification by faith and zwingli caught on to and calvin as a second generation reformer latched on to as well Um, but even so as we've talked through things in the catholic church we've noted at multiple times that there were many people who stood up and said we need to change what's happening in the church this has been an ongoing thing for hundreds of years where we would cycle through popes That were good and holy and wanted to do what is right and then we would just be dumped back into having a pope who was out for power and for money and for fame and for glory of the world um it just seems like the way that the catholic church is set up they can't avoid that kind of thing power attracts people who want power and so um there's always these calls for reformation. Most of the the calling for reformation and the actual trying to reform the church in the 16th century, which actually began earlier in the 15th century, um, was coming from Queen Isabella in Spain. Um, Her and her husband wanted to reform the church. Ferdinand, for um, reasons that weren't very noble. Isabella, for reasons that were really, truly noble. Um, they both wanted to have um, the same kind of problems that were going on in the church previously were still going on. Um, the the problem of simony and the um, selling of ecclesiological posts to people who didn't deserve them uh, simply so that you could make some cash off of it. This idea of nepotism and giving positions to people within your family so that you could retain power. Secular leaders loved this idea. They wanted to do this because there were always two powers. There's the power of the state, the power of the church that we're always fighting. So if you could put your son or your cousin in as a power of the church, then you could control both the power of the state and the power of the church, and nepotism was a real problem there. Um, pluralism, having multiple posts, um, all of those problems continued, even though There were councils already assigned to say these things shouldn't happen. They they were still happening. Um, The priests still tended to be very poor. Most of them couldn't read outside of being able to read the Mass in Latin. Um, They were very poorly trained, very poorly educated, um, and they, they were basically just there as robots to do the Mass, and they didn't offer much of anything else monasteries continue to become places for lazy people to congregate, um, and these continued to go through these reformations where the stringency would come back, but then um Because monasteries did so much good. We went through a series where we were looking at Augustine and Athanasius and the Cappadocian fathers and Ambrose. Ambrose didn't do it, but um, many—Luther, right? All these guys went into the monastery, and the monastery served them so well because they devoted themselves to the studying of Scripture. It seemed to help them so much in their theological pursuits. But because so much time is given over to the study of Scripture, it is also— a really nice place for people who are super lazy who just kind of want to float through life to live okay um, and especially when enough of those people get involved and they start to work up through the system entropy tends to laziness and monasteries were we're kind of falling in that path so isabella wanted to uh, she was a very devout woman wanted to change this um she got a hold of the Pope, and she was a powerful woman at the time, got a hold of the Pope and said, I want control over the posts that are the ecclesiological posts in my area. And he said, sure. She wanted that control so that she could put pious people in charge. Um, Ferdinand also wanted that control, but so he could put people who would serve him in charge. So when the main archbishopry came open in Ferdinand's area, um, he appointed his son, to that position uh, who had no theological training. And you might say, well, why would he appoint someone with no theological training? Um, it would be because his son was six when he appointed him archbishop. Um, and so uh, the the bloke maybe could read and write, but he didn't know much else um, and, and probably still was iffy with a spoon. So um, being, being in control over something like that isn't t- typically good. But Isabella wasn't like that. Um, her main confessor and then her main um, sort of uh, partner within the church was a man named Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros. Um, he was a very devout and pious Franciscan priest. Uh, he spent 10 years in prison for not going along with some of the um, iffier things that the Catholic Church was doing, and he said no thanks to those things, and uh, he got thrown in prison for 10 years, so he meant what he said, and he was, him and Isabella tracked with one another. They they understood one another. Um, When he was in prison, um, he was able to study Hebrew and Chaldean. He became a scholar in those things, and it was at his hands that one of the most Uh, important works of the late medieval era was formed, which is called the Complutensian Polyglot, um, which is just basically a conglomeration of um, Hebrew text, Greek text, um, a a Latin text done by many different scholars that he kind of put together. um, And uh, it was a really important work at the time. This is what Jimenez said in 1520. So this is right before Luther blew up. In 1520, these are the words that he said, and, and the, a lot of people have pointed out, if he had said this in 1530, he probably would have been burned as a heretic, but in 1520, this was okay. He said, this edition of the Bible that, at this critical time, opens the sacred sources of our religion from which will flow a much purer theology than any derived from less direct sources. So he, he is quite honestly and openly putting scripture above tradition there um, and I think that he could wiggle his way out of it but his, his basic idea is if we laid out scripture then we have a direct source to our true religion that is better than anything that we could get any other way um, we're going to find out that by the end of the 1500s by the middle to end of the 1500s we're going to read here in just a minute that the church is going to reject that wholly. the catholic church will So they're going through and doing these reforms, but they're they're reforming, but they're clearly not tolerant. Um, Jiménez and Isabel will start what is known as the Spanish Inquisition. Um, There were other inquisitions that were going on, but the Spanish one became kind of famous Um, over the course of about 300 years. It went on from a long time; from uh, began in 1478, so up through and and closing in on the middle part of the 18th century. They prosecuted over 150,000 people, um, eventually torturing and killing somewhere between, you know, three and five thousand people, um, which sounds like a lot. But remember, in England, we had Protestants and Catholic, about 600 Protestants and Catholics being killed in about a 25 year span. So it's, this is not, over 300 years is not at a much higher pace than that. Um, It's still not great. Um, Spain's sort of a natural place for this because, again, um, Spain is unlike the rest of Europe, which was solidly Christian and Catholic for a very long time. But there were remnants of the Arab conquest up into Spain that still lasted there. And there were heavy Jewish pockets of population that still existed in Spain. And again, when you have religion and government melting together, you, you can't tolerate things like that. To, not, to be Spanish is to be Catholic it's not to be anything else. And so this was sort of a natural overflow of the the sword of the state being confused with the sword of Scripture, and, and those two don't go together well, and that's why you get things like the Spanish Inquisition. So there was this sort of um, moral reformation going on and trying to do what is right, um, but eventually what had to happen was the Catholic Church had to respond to the protestant doctrines that have been put forward and you get this basically in the council of trent the council of trent is going to happen much later than it should have it's going to happen in about um, almost 1546 very late in 1545 Um, it happens that way because the popes at this time are again uh, like leo X when luther was in charge was basically there to try and be as um, as enlightened as he can be, so his whole purpose was to have great artists come in and do great work for his great cathedrals, and and so that he would his all the projects that he touched would look better than everyone else's. Um, and and to do that, they couldn't give away power. And remember, in the Conciliar movement. Um, part of the trouble that the popes got into with the conciliar movement was that these councils thought that they held power over popes. So no pope was going to be quick to call a council. But eventually it came to the fact that there was just no way to avoid this. They needed to call one. So even though Luther started spurning uh, or or poking the bear in the eye back in the 1520s, and that really took um, a lot of um, time, not only through the 1520s, but the 1530s, it took an extra 15 years for the church to really get on it. And even then, the Council of Trent didn't get off to a hot start. So Trent is a is a city in northern Italy, um, and it was supposed to be a church council. The Roman Catholic Church considers it the 19th ecumenical council. Um, we consider it um, two steps above hot garbage, but, um, but they consider it ecumenical—this is being recorded, right?— uh, <laughs> <clears throat> it's not all bad, but it's mostly bad, um, they, they consider it the 19th Ecumenical Council. But remember, in Nicaea, that happened in, you know, um, 350 or whenever it was, uh, I've got the date wrong, but in the 4th century, they had 300 bishops show up for that thing. And that is more than a thousand years before this. And the roads were worse, and traveling was harder, and it just, it would have been much more difficult to get there. When the Council of Trent was first kicked off, 31 people showed up for it, okay? This is not a great showing. And, and not only that, but Nicaea was further away from most people. The traveling was longer and harder, but they cared more. People just weren't showing up for this. And um, it wasn't well-received at first. It took them some almost 20 years to figure all of this out, but it wasn't because they were meeting for 20 solid years. It was because for the vast majority of that time, they couldn't get bishops together to actually meet and to, to write these things out. Um, but at any rate, you get the Council of Trent, which is easily defined online, and you can read what the, the doctrine says. We're going to go through some of it. Um, <clears throat> the major problem with what you find in Trent is that it's not really— pro-Catholic doctrine. I don't really know how to say it. Um, when you read it, you get the sense that it is saying what, it's positive in the sense that it's saying what Catholics are to believe. But it's negative in the fact that it is just a response to Protestant doctrine. Like um, it, is, it is just denying the very things that Protestants wanted to hold on to. And they go out of their way to simply point out where protestants have gone wrong they're not trying to talk about the good things that protestants have done which they agree on a lot of so remember martin luther the diet of worms all of his writings there are saying hey i've got a lot of things here that everyone here should agree with um they they're not trying to put that forward what they're trying to do is say if protestants say this we can't say it and we're gonna say boo to it okay um so it's, it's kind of a rambling document. It's not very tightly knit and organized, which you get over 20 years. Um, there's a couple of interesting things in it. One, um, included and embedded within the document itself, uh, which again is not, I don't think, well organized. Um, they have these little things on Reformation. And they don't mean the Protestant Reformation. They mean, here are things that need to change within the Catholic Church. And there are many of them. And a lot of them are addressing the very things that we've, we've talked about the church needing to address. Um, the qualifications for people receiving church positions. Um, how uh, the fact that if you have... Um, if you have multiple positions, you have to give one of them up. You've got to choose, and you've got to give it up. We're not joking around about that anymore. And they, they go through, and they, they talk about, we're not putting up with the stuff that's been happening anymore. And they seem to be very serious about it in, under this. There's also this really weird provision, which I've, and I, I hope I read this correctly. Maybe I don't understand exactly what they're saying, but um, where the council promised safe travel and safe harbor for any Protestant anywhere— especially Germans, German people who wanted to come and ask questions and even provide, like, provisions to the council. So if you were a Protestant, you could show up without any fear of being burned at the stake and say, what do you guys think about this? Now, in likelihood, they're going to say, read it, crumple it up, and throw it in the fire and say, yeah, it sounded great. Why don't you go away, Bob? Um, but, but nevertheless, like, they, they said, this is, you know, um, they used words like, no matter how close the person is to heresy or something like that, which is a nice way of saying, we'll, even if you're a heretic, we'll put up with you for just a little bit. We, it, was, it was just kind of a bone that was thrown out there, and I thought that that was really interesting. Um, but as you would think, there's a lot in it that's not good. We're going to start with authority, um, and I'm going to read you. They, they start with authority and church authority, and this is where um, you eventually have um, For the first time, the Catholic Church in an ecumenical council throwing down the idea that church authority is on equal level with, or church tradition is what we want to say, on equal level with Scripture. So in the fourth session, it takes them four sessions to get there, but in the fourth session they say this, uh, This synod, following the examples of the Orthodox fathers, receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence, all the books, both of the Old and the New Testament, seeing that one God is the author of both, as also the said traditions, as well as those appertaining to faith as to morals, as having been dictated either by Christ's own word of mouth or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church by a continuous succession. Now, that is a bar that they cannot meet, okay? So, what they're What they are clearly doing there is they're getting away because even catholics at this time although they want to hold the pope in reverence they can look back over history and know some of those blokes are idiots okay and they don't deserve to be put on a pedestal so they they can't just say what the pope says is good okay they they can't do that so what they want to do is affirm church history but they've got to have this sort of length to it right there's got to be a a way to affirm that it's a tradition and not just a a momentary fad and so they say equal affection of piety reference books of the old testament as well as the traditions um as having been dictated by christ's own words so if we find the words of christ or by the mouth of the Holy Ghost, so whether Christ says it or whether it's written down in tradition by the Holy Ghost, as, and, and they put, and preserved in the Catholic Church by a continuous succession, which means it has always been that case. Well, we're going to read plenty of stuff that they affirm that has, in no way can they prove that it's been affirmed by a continuous succession. Like, it's just an, um, it's an impossible bar to meet. Like, the only way you can meet that is say, to do this sort of negative thing. If we believe it, you have to prove that it's not by continuous succession, right? Which is basically what they're going to do, but that's not really what's written here, how it works out. So um, they are clearly trying to get rid of the Protestant Reformation simply by saying, hey, you know, this has to all be in continuous and constant succession from the time of the beginning, and those traditions hold just as much authority as Scripture okay? They're going to go on and define what Scripture is. So they talk about all the books of Scripture, um, including books that we would not include, which we would call um, deuterocanonical, meaning books like um, uh, the the book of Maccabees, first and second book of Maccabees, and and things like that. Um, And then the New Testament's fine. They've got the right New Testament down. But they say this at the end of that section as well. But if anyone received not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts, as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the Old Latin Vulgate edition. So it's not the authoritative version of the Church, it's not Greek, and it's not Hebrew. It is the Old Vulgate, which means basically it is what Jerome did. And the catholic church just hasn't been able to keep that up either so they they believe finally in vatican ii that it's okay to translate that however even now catholic scholars know that the vulgate has sections in it that were not correct like they've done what we do with critical studies any anything that we have we have adopted in protestant circles catholics have done just as much. And so they know that there are places where there is just not good textual evidence for including this stuff. I don't know how they handled this, because Trent was really firm. If it's in the old Vulgate, it belongs in Scripture, Um, apparently whether Paul wrote it or not. So they're they're very firm on that. Um, The next section has to deal with original sin, which isn't um, terribly interesting. It's exactly what you think it is. Um, The main ideas here are The original sin that Adam had um, is passed. the guilt of that sin, and that sinfulness is passed down to people. And they're very clear, and this is actually a pretty good section, they're very clear to say it isn't the imitation of what Adam did that's passed down. So you are not like Adam in that you have the tendency to be sinful or something like that. They're very clear you are guilty of Adam's sin. Um, this is what original sin is talking about. You are guilty of Adam's sin. There are two people, by the way, in the history of the world who are not guilty of Adam's sin. Does anyone know who those are? One's easy. The other one is Mary. So you guys know that the Immaculate Conception is not talking about Jesus, right? The Immaculate Conception is the conception of Mary by her mama because Mary has to be free of sin as well. Now, I don't know why you can't just like keep going backwards with that because it seems like that's what you'd have to do. But they, they go out of their way to say, let me read it for you. I think I've got to highlight it highlighted if I can find it. Um, this same holy synod doth nevertheless declare that it is not its intention to include in this decree, the decree of original sin, where original sin is treated of, the blessed and immaculate Virgin Mary. So she does not come under the effects of original sin. And they don't explain at all why that is the case, how that is the case, where that is the case, um, they they quote Pope Sixtus the um, and they put of happy memory, which is just funny, like we remember fondly Pope Sixtus the Four. What a great—sixtus the fourth is also really funny. But they put off happy memory after that. Um, But nevertheless. So, yeah, Mary gets passed off. And the other thing is included in this, a, a direct reference to baptism, which is the remission of sins. And so they're saying the way in which that original sin is taken away is by baptism. If you baptize your child, they are forgiven for original sin. And thereby, they are allowed to enter into heaven when they die. If they're not baptized, they're not going to heaven because that original sin is not forgiven, okay? So, um, and, and the interesting bit about that is the logic there is a little bit, I think, different and tighter than, I mean, if you're going to go paedo-baptist, that really is the way you've got to go. I don't, I don't know how you can go another way, um, because it's not just an entrance into the covenant. But anyway, um, there's obvious problems with the way in which they handle infant baptism, because infant baptism is just wrong. But, you know, what are you going to do? Um, The next important part is one that we've talked about before, justification. Uh, We talked about this one. We talked about Thomas Aquinas, um, and they're just basically applying Aquinas' view on justification to things. Um, We read this before, but I think it's worth reading again. Um, Justification uh, says this, this um, preparation, the preparation for justification, is followed by justification itself. And this is the important part which is not remission of sins merely, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of the grace and the gifts whereby man of unjust becomes just. And that's the key. So justification for them is not just the declaring of God that you are free from your sins. It is the actual production of justice in people. Okay? That's what they believe. So you, you, when we talk about Catholics and their va- bad views on justification, we need, to, we need to understand what they're saying. For them, justification and sanctification are not two separate things. They are two parts of the same reality. To be justified is to be sanctified, and to be sanctified is to be justified. So justified for them means to be made just, Okay? And you can understand, if, you're, if your view is that, you can understand when Protestants say, well, you're justified by faith alone, Catholics going, that sounds really dumb. Right? Now, the theologians should have known better, because they can read very well what Martin Luther and other Protestants were saying, but they just flat out deny it, um, probably because that's what Luther was saying. I, I, I really want to be clear about that. If if, if the church had handled Luther better, and if um, I don't think it was really Luther's fault, although Luther has a sharp tongue and probably didn't help himself, if the church had handled Luther better, justification could have easily turned out differently. It just it could have turned out where we and Catholics would have agreed on certain things in ju- terms of justification, because it's clear when when you tack on sanctification to justification, we would talk a lot like Catholics do. But because we separate out the two, rightly as Scripture does, we, we, can't, we can't get on board with what they say. Um, and this comes out later. Um, when you hear them, and so this is from the next chapter on justification, which I want to read to you before we move on, just to show you the difficulty that they've got with things. Um, whereas the apostle says, or saith, that man is justified by faith and freely, basically, they're like, so we got a problem with this verse. <laughs> so we're going to explain what the problem is with this verse. The apostle says that you are justified freely by grace. When he says you're justified, or by faith, by faith and freely. Those words are understood in the sense in which the perpetual consent of the Catholic Church has held and expressed. That is false. Like, what they're about to say is not at all what the catholic church has always said it is what the catholic church has said since aquinas but it's not like the full demonstration of you can't like flip open augustine and find these words in augustine it's just they're, they're just making it up now to wit that we are therefore said to be justified by faith, because faith is the beginning of human salvation, the foundation, and the root of all justification, without which it is impossible to please God, and come unto the fellowship of his sons. But we are therefore said to be justified freely, because that none of those things which precede justification, whether faith or, or works, merit the grace of justification itself. For if it be a grace, it is not now by works. Otherwise, as the same apostle says, grace is no more grace. So we're saying, when he says you're justified freely, what he means is justification is started by grace. But they are also clear to say, sanctification happens because you work for it. So the fullness of justification is not freely by grace. And they say, what he means there is just, you're starting it by grace. And the Protestant response is, but that's not what he said, right? It's just not what he said. And there isn't, and, and their way of expressing that is like, the Catholic Church has always believed this. I, I'm telling you, that, that, is just not, that is just not true. Like, the Church didn't put up a huge amount of, of words concerning justification until Luther started to write about it. Like, Aquinas touches on it, But it's not a huge factor in the writings of the early church fathers. There's no way of of basing what they're saying on anything. Um, Briefly, because we're running out of time, um, they turn to the sacraments, and a lot of the Council of Trent is dealing with the sacraments. Um, They they have seven sacraments. A sacrament is basically this, and uh, we would do well to think about using how we use the term sacrament and why we want to either accept or reject that term. The sacrament basically says this. It is, um, a sacrament is something through which God provides grace for people. Okay? So it is a, um, an instrument by which the grace of God comes to people. Now, can we buy into the church having any sacraments then? So I will leave, I'll ask it out loud as I did, and I will let you guys answer it. Do we believe in any sacraments? So if a sacrament is any instrument by which God gives grace to people, do we believe in sacraments? I have a, somebody who's shaking her head yes, but she doesn't want to say it out loud, so I'll leave her anonymous. But um, anybody else want to say yes? Because you're Baptist, you're like, no, I don't believe in sacraments. Okay, so here's, here's what I, I would say we have three. Because how, how, where is grace found? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is found where there is what in people? What do you have to have in order to receive the grace of Jesus Christ? Faith. Faith comes by. Oh, well, that's an instrument by which we're given grace, eh? <laughs> The preaching and the proclamation of the gospel is nothing but a sacrament to bring grace to people, okay? Now, the other sacraments that we would speak of would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. And even the way in which our bylaws talk about the Lord's Supper makes them sound sacramental because we talk about it is a, it is a provision of grace that we get. But we are very clear to define that as being unified with our faith, okay? Because both baptism and and the Lord's table are nothing but pictorial representations of the gospel of God itself. So the proclamation of the gospel and the picturing of the gospel are all instruments by which grace are given to people, okay? Now, we would say that that has to be united with faith. The Catholic Church is going to go out of their way to say that there are seven sacraments of which preaching and proclamation of the gospel is not one, um, amazingly enough. Uh, Marriage is, though. So, good news. Sorry. Uh, marriages, though, uh, for those of you who are, well, you just feel like, ah, oh. and I was like, oh, sorry. Um, but also, like, being a priest, being part, they call it orders, um, that that's a sacrament. Um, it's a strange collection of them. So, the way that the United um, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops put, puts it is, through the sacraments, God shares his holiness with us so that we in turn can make the world holier. I, you know, that's kind of a, a lukewarm definition of it, but the idea is through these sacraments, God gives us grace so that we can be holier and then provide holiness in the world. All right, let me, let me read a couple of these. <clears throat> if anyone saith, this is the first canon of the sacraments. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law, and I don't know why the Council of Trent continues to use the language of new law, but they just mean the New Testament. The new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ. Okay? That's really strong language. So remember, you need either Jesus to say it, the Holy Spirit to give it, and it's got to be this sort of continuously used thing in the Christian church, unless Scripture says it. So they say, if anyone says all of the sacraments, seven of them, which they then list, were not all instituted by Jesus Christ or that there are more or less than seven of them, you're anathema. You're cursed. You're out. Okay? The seven are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, which I believe um, is just last rites given to people right before they die. Um, Order. Again, order is basically where we get the word ordination from. It's, It's the making people into priests, and matrimony. Um, he says, if you don't believe that those are the seven and that Jesus Christ spoke those as being part of the sacraments of the, the New Testament, uh, you're out, um, which is crazy because extreme unction is just, like you don't find Jesus doing that. Jesus doesn't do that. He never tells people to do that. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that they, Confirmation. When do we find Jesus teaching confirmation classes? It's just not… You're fine. It's just, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's your confirmation. So you, I guess you can find them. You guys are doing a really good job. I couldn't think of those examples. That's right. And a very specific age. Um, i just i think it i think it's kind of crazy the second one is this and this sounds like they are directly responding to john calvin um i I don't know if calvin's arguments that we talked about were very widely known but this sounds the second canon sounds like it's a direct response to him if anyone saith that these sacraments of the new law do not differ from the sacraments of the old law save that the ceremonies are different and different outward rites let them be anathema. That is literally the precise thing that Calvin argued. And so they're, they're looking at that argument and saying, you're right out. That doesn't, that doesn't count either. Um, the third one I think is really interesting. If anyone says that these seven sacraments are equal to each other so that one is not in any way more worthy than another, you are also right out. So that's interesting because they, they let you know that the sacraments are not all equal. Okay? So that Baptism and mass um, take up a huge portion of the importance of what's going to happen in in the Catholic Church, whereas things like orders and marriage are possibly not for everyone, and therefore they're not as important, okay? So they're saying that there are different levels here, but it's interesting that you can't even disagree with that. Like, there's no disagreeing. You have to agree that there are different orders, or you're right out. And so you see that this is so narrow in what they're trying to to say in order to keep the church unified they've just gotta really hammer down on stuff um i do want to go on and and mention a couple of other things before we take questions and dismiss um the eucharist is uh transubstantiation heavy and again when it comes to transubstantiation they are making pronouncements like the catholic church has always believed this which you just left shaking your head like no no, no, we can actually kind of trace where this, and we did in church history, like in the seven or 800s where this sort of thinking came up, and the Catholic Church at first was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm not sure we, we buy into this. And now, by the time the, the 16th century rolls around, because you've got Zwingli and others denying, and, and Luther, denying transubstantiation, now all of a sudden you're saying, no, 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 Catholic Church has always believed this. Well, it's just it's just not true. Um, and here is also where purgatory is given its full existence. Um, and the the thing on purgatory is the same kind of weird. Um, the, the churches always believe this kind of thing. Um, they do a couple of interesting things with purgatory, though, and I want to say this. Um, when it comes to how do you help people who are in purgatory, they say you should offer indulgences for that, but those indulgences are not purchased. Instead, those through masses, prayers, alms, and other works of piety, you can apply those merits that you're getting through there to people who are in purgatory to help them out. And priests ought to do that. Priests ought to encourage people to do that, okay? Um, I don't believe in purgatory. If there was purgatory, you know— that's a good thing to teach, okay? And then they turn around, and they're, they're quite clearly, and this is the one place where they're giving an inch to Luther and to everyone else. They say this, when it comes to indulgences, or when it comes to purgatory, those things which tend to a certain kind of curiosity or superstition, um, uh, hang on, I've got, oh, okay, which, which, Uh, tend to a certain kind of curiosity or superstition, or which savor of filthy lucre. I love that word, lucre. Uh, Let them prohibit as scandalous and stumbling blocks of the faithful. So in other words, they're saying, we're going to teach, you should teach on purgatory. What you should teach on purgatory is that people should do masses and give alms and do other works of piety for the people who are in purgatory. When it comes to anything further about purgatory, we don't know anything, so shut up. And the reason why we don't know anything is because it's not written in Scripture, and we don't have church tradition on it, so we're just not going to talk about it, although they couch that in other language, superstition and curiosity. I, I wonder why people are curious about this place. You say that everyone goes for millions of years, and, and they get out because I gave a couple of bucks. But they do end up saying, or which savor of filthy lucre? So they're saying, if you're going to teach something which sounds like you're just trying to get money out of people— that's got to be done away with. And so there's this like small little admission that Luther had a point, right? Like, like the selling of indulgences wasn't a good thing, and we acknowledge it with, with like three words in this whole document. We acknowledge it. Um, that's progress. So again, the Catholic Church is reforming. I'm going to say that it, it's interesting to go through here. There's a lot of stuff that, that you read, and you're like, okay— that's too heavy-handed. They are anathematizing people for like breathing in Protestant states. Okay, they're not doing that, but it's pretty close to it. Like if you smell like a Protestant, you're anathema. So it's not quite, it's not quite there, but it's, it's getting really close to it. And what they want to do is, this is the beginning of the Catholic Church trying to say, we are the church, and we know we're the church because we have the teaching. And once you start doing that, you start having to narrowly and more narrowly and more narrowly and more narrowly define what the teaching is so that everyone has to believe the same things well and that's what they get protestants on they say hey you guys have you know so many hundreds of thousands of different churches and you've got so many millions of of different denominations and it's just there's no unity there at all but we can go from pope benedict the 16th to pope francis two people who couldn't be more dissimilar to one another and say, oh no, we're all on the same page. Like, Benedict quit because of the difficulty that he had in dealing with the Catholic Church on doctrinal matters. Like, you're no more unified than any Protestant church that that splits over carpet color. Let's be quite clear about that. Um, but they're, they're trying to show their unity in these things, um, and so they've got to really define it narrowly. And then um, they're— the response that they give to Protestant teachings, um, the, the major thing again as we come back and back and back and back again to it is not the doctrinal matters. It is always going to be the matters of authority because they don't have to argue from Scripture. They're not even trying to. All they're saying is it's church tradition. This is what the church has done, therefore it's right. And, and when you've got that as your trump card, there is no arguing with them. There's, there's you are on parallel roads that will never meet, that will never cross, and there's nothing that you can do about that. Like, if, if they're just staunchly going to say, you know, the church has always believed that justification and sanctification are the same thing. Well, there's no amount of biblical arguing you can do with people to get them off of that rail. There's no reformation that will ever come to the Catholic Church that will move them doctrinally where they need to be if they're going to steadfastly hold to that. Now, where you have Catholics who take the Bible seriously and study it, you can start to work on them that way. But if they're going to be content with what Trent is trying to do, which is to say, well, listen, the church has done it this way. This is what we believe. This is how we have believed. We're just going to continue on that way. And if you disagree with us, you're anathema. There's just nothing you can do. So this is why when I talk about the Reformation, I think justification by faith is a big deal. It's a big deal theologically. The main thing that is is separating Baptists and Catholics uh, or Presbyterians and Catholics or Anglicans and Catholics, any Protestant form of the faith and Catholicism is not justification by faith. It is church authority. It is the fact that we think that the Bible is the authority alone because then we can point to things like you are justified freely by faith and say, I I don't know, what do you do with that? And unless you can point to church authority, there's not much you can do with that except to say, well, Paul says that we're justified freely by faith. Well, you've got to think of how justification works then in terms of being done completely by faith. So um, anyway, as as we kind of wrap up that, we're going to be turning back to more um, we're moving closer to Baptisty things, uh, but any questions on on Trent and um, sort of the Catholic Reformation of doctrine as we go forward? Literally, I hear crickets outside. That's fun. When, when were Baptists born. Baptist born? When they hit the water, brother? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the general Baptists, uh, which are, uh, the Anabaptists, which, which occurred, um, kind of after the first wave of Reformation were not quite our forefathers. Um, they were a little bit all over the map for us and they believe things that we don't believe. Um, it's going to be into the next century when the general Baptists start to arise in England that a lot of the Baptist tendencies that will eventually take form in, Baptist churches like ours are really going to um, make, make their way into history. So right now, um, the Anabaptist movement has kind of fizzled out on the continent when you're talking about the, the late part of the 16th century. Um, and it won't be until uh, the General Baptists kind of reappear <laughs> or appear in England that that's going to become a, a major force again. Yeah. Yeah. I can well I, we can finish this up next week if you want, so yeah, yeah, well we're we're heading into the 1700s, and so uh, it won't be long before we're talking about the first Great Awakening in North America, so pretty soon we're going to be coming across the pond, as they say, so. We were really late. I don't know where our kids are. Um, let's pray, and uh, hopefully our kids didn't get lost as they waded across the or waddled across the uh, parking lot. Uh, Father God, we are thankful for um, your holy Scripture, and I am I am extraordinarily grateful um, that it is our authority, um, our final authority. It's not our only authority. We we can listen to church uh, tradition and to understand that it has an important place in how we handle Scripture and what we do with Scripture. But ultimately, Father, um, and we ought to be very, very clear that going against church tradition is not should not be easy for us. We ought to be very careful about that. But we are grateful that we have a document written down that is sure and steady that is our final authority in all things. We pray that we are, um, our consciences are, are bound by that. We pray that our confessions are bound by that and that what we do in the final sense of things is always bound by what Scripture says is true and good and right. Um, we're grateful for that, that we are not left up to the winds of change and the, the blowing fads of man, um, but that we are standing firmly on Scripture itself. And pray that you help us with this. Uh, Pray that you allow us to continue to be faithful in all things. And where we fail, Father, forgive us and help us to do better. In Jesus' name, amen.